28,000 men would give their lives in the battle for Iwo Jima, which took place between February 19th and March 26th, 1945, in the Pacific Ocean, about 650 miles south of Japan. A tiny volcanic island shaped like a pork chop on the map, with the handle being a volcano on the southwest tip and comprised of jagged coral peaks and caves. Iwo was a critical target in the War of the Pacific, which for those of you new to World War II history, was begun by Germany in late 1938, with a then isolationist America watching and providing tanks and planes to Britain and its allies, but not involved, until provoked by a Japanese surprise attack on a number of Allied bases in the Pacific theater, the most damaging to the U.S., being a carrier-based bomber and torpedo plane attack on the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7, 1941, which killed 2,400 servicemen and destroyed a large number of American ships in the harbor. The war in the Pacific represented the second of two war fronts in which the U.S. and its allies were involved, the second being that of Europe, at the heart of which was Hitler and Germany, which surrendered in May of 1945. The war in the Pacific theater continued on, with Japan refusing to surrender even after the fall of Saipan and Okinawa, until the unleashing of the atomic bomb on the island of Japan, which initiated the surrender of the Japanese in August of 1945. In this multi-episode series, we will explain why the taking of Iwo Jima was necessary, explain what went into the planning, how it was fought, the incredible acts of heroism that took place, and how it is remembered 73 years later. Many of the men who survived the hell that was Iwo Jima could not and would not talk about it until many years later. It is a story that every American should know and be proud of. When the American flag was planted in two separate actions atop Mount Suribachi, long before the end of the fighting, every man still alive there was deeply moved to see it waving some to the point of tears. American battleships offshore blew their horns and waved. Bloodied soldiers wept openly. Those soldiers, sailors and airmen, black, white, Indian, Catholic, Jew, Protestant, atheist, had fought side by side to place it there and to once again leave their blood on foreign soil to ensure America's freedom from dictators, emperors, and tyrants. These men, some of America's best, would never fail to salute and honor that flag in the future, despite whatever grievances they had. Vietnam would bring a different generation, and the 21st century, yet another, mostly driven by political animosities and cultural discord. When the picture taken by Joe Rosenthal of the planting of that flag on the hard-fought, stinking hellhole of an island reached American magazines and newspapers. That one picture meant more to every American than any article or war story or documentary could ever portray. It is to the Marines, sailors, Army and Navy pilots, Seabees, and underwater demolition experts who took part in this fight, one of World War II's fiercest and bloodiest battles in the Pacific theater, that we dedicate this series it was a battle which pitted the Imperial Japanese Army against the United States Marine Corps 
and their army and naval support forces. A battle that for most of the men involved resembled a vision of Dante's Inferno, hell on earth. 38 men here at Iwo earned the Medal of Honor for their heroism. This one island accounted for one-third of all the Medal of Honors earned in the four long and terrible years of World War II. This was a 38-day action. The legendary USS Saratoga fought her last battle here. The Seabees earned a place in history for their actions here, as well as the UDT, or underwater demolition teams, which would one day become known as the Navy SEALs. Navajo code talkers transmitted over 800 messages during the battle and kept the Japanese clueless as to what the Americans were doing. John Bassalone, a hero of Guadalcanal, one of our previous episodes on World War II, would die here fighting. And the Battle of Iwo Jima would inspire one of the greatest war movies ever made, The Sands of Iwo Jima, which earned John Wayne an Oscar nomination. These words from Admiral Chester Nimitz sum it up. They fought together as brothers in arms. They died together, and now they sleep side by side. To them, we have a solemn obligation. This is their story. real hard well they're like I said they uh, they were out to get you and so many each jab had to get so many Americans it was there was continuous fire and withering fire on that beach until the 23rd of uh, February when they had uh, taken Serbachi the 28th Marines had taken Serbachi and uh, had got the high ground. War two, but uh, this was the most violent battle, uh, characterized by very close infighting, uh, where in many cases young Marines survived because they were better with a combat knife than the Japanese defender was with his bayonet on the end of his rifle. And uh, you have to be proud when your Marines under your command perform with such tremendous courage and do so well to win. While we were at the line of departure, there was a lot of naval aircraft that was strafing the beaches, strafing Serbachi, bombing Serbachi. There was aircraft that were coming down from the north on the island, B-24s bombing. Uh, the smoke was about the volcanic ash and smoke had raised to about the height of Serbati, maybe 500 and something feet in the air. You could see the fringe around that. Or not. To me, he's out thin and he's still a damn jab. I'm talking about the soldier himself. And, and I said, as long as I live, that's what I'll call him. And as long as I live, I'll hate the SOB too. 
I've been to Japan and I don't hold any grudges against, you know, the Japanese people. But the Jap soldier, I hated him. And I still hate him. I've seen Marines tied up to a tree and used for bayonet practice. I've seen them, uh, their heads cut off. Uh, I've seen them, their testicles cut out. Uh, do just about anything that you could possibly think of, the Japs would do that. I've seen them use a bayonet on people, maybe 50 or 60 bayonet thrusters through the guy, and for any one of the first one that killed him, and he just keeps keeps going, you know, and keeps, I guess they all took turn or whatever, I don't know what the hell they thought of, but they're, they're a, a brutal uh, enemy and sadistical enemy. They just uh, uh, have no feeling for anything or anybody. And they, they uh, one of the type that would, uh, wouldn't surrender, they fought until death. And uh, I tried to accommodate as many of them as I could while I was out there. They wanted to die to the for the emperor. I tried to help them along with that. Well, thank God for this country that we live in. Really, we take too many things for granted here. Historians have argued over the importance of Iwo Jima, which Admirals Spruance and Nimitz recognized as necessary to control in order to give our long-range bombers airstrips at which they could refuel and used for the attack on Okinawa and the Japanese main islands, which could not be bypassed if Japan was to fall. These historians argue that only a dozen effective bombing runs originated from Iwo after we captured the airfields there. But they're missing the real reason we had to take it. It wasn't to launch B-29s. There were other more important reasons. American servicemen had waited the coming of the B-29s for years. The very long-range bombers, called Super Fortresses, which had become operational too late for the European war, had been striking mainland Japan since November of 1944. The results proved disappointing. The problem stemmed not from the pilots or planes, but rather from a pain-in-the-ass little spit of volcanic rock lying halfway along the direct path from Saipan to Tokyo, Iwo Jima. Iwo's radar gave the Japanese defense authorities two hours advance notice of every B-29 strike. Japanese fighters based on Iwo's two completed airstrips swarmed up to harass the unescorted superforts going in and especially coming home, picking off those bombers crippled by anti-aircraft fire. As a result, the B-29s had to fly higher along circuitous routes with a reduced payload, meaning less bombs to drop. At the same time, enemy bombers based on Iwo often raided B-29 bases in the Marianas, causing damage there as well. Iwo couldn't be bypassed. It had to be taken. The Joint Chiefs of Staff decided Iwo Jima must be captured and a U.S. air base built there. This would eliminate Japanese bombing raids and the early warning interceptions provide fighter escorts throughout the most dangerous portion of the long B-29 missions and enable greater payloads at longer ranges. 
Iwo Jima in American hands would also provide a welcome emergency field for crippled B-29s returning from Tokyo. In one document, I read that 2,200 crippled B-29s returning from bombing runs over heavily defended Japanese territory found refuge at Iwo. They wouldn't have made it anywhere else. Iwo would also protect the flank of the pending invasion of Okinawa. In October 1944, the Joint Chiefs directed Fleet Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, Sink Pack, to seize and develop Iwo Jima within the ensuing three months. This launched Operation Detachment. Early on, it was up to intelligence to provide a critical analysis of the defensive posture of the Japanese on Iwo, and from there the men in charge would devise a strategy to take the island. It was here that mistakes in underestimating troop strength and defenses were made that would prove costly. To be fair, there was no way intelligence could see the 16 miles of underground tunnels and caverns that were honeycombed all around the island, or the 23,000 Japanese troops that were waiting inside them, waiting to come out and pick their targets before disappearing back inside. And they couldn't see the steel doors built into the openings all over Mount Suribachi that concealed the big Japanese guns that had been zeroed in on the only two landing beaches available. Guns that would roll out, fire, then retreat behind the steel doors again. The responsibility for defending Iwo Jima was given to General Tasamichi Kurabayashi, a sixth-generation samurai personally appointed by Emperor Hirohito. Kurabayashi had proven himself in China and Manchuria, and before the war he had been a Japanese military attaché in the United States, so he knew the states well. Kurabayashi combined combat experience with an innovative mind and an iron will. Although this would be his only combat against American forces, he had learned much about his prospective opponents from earlier service in the United States. More significantly, he was able to use the knowledge gained from previous battles and did so adroitly. He had learned from previous mistakes of other Japanese commanders. For instance, the defend-at-the-water's-edge tactics, and the all-or-nothing bonsai attacks which had characterized Japan's failures from Tarawa to Tinian. Kurabayashi, a realist, also knew not to expect much help from Japan's depleted fleet and air forces. His best chances, he concluded, would be to maximize Iwo's forbidding terrain with a defense in-depth along the pattern of the recent Biak and Peleliu defensive efforts. He would eschew coast defense, anti-landing, and bonsai tactics, and instead conduct a prolonged battle of attrition, a war of nerves, patience, and time. If he put up a fierce enough defense over an extended period of time, there was always the hope that the Americans would lose heart and abandon the campaign. Such a seemingly passive policy proved counterintuitive to high Japanese command. But knowing he was doomed to defend an island with no reinforcements, they finally relented to his plans, which they thought to be too much of a defensive posture. Kurabayashi had one huge advantage, time to prepare. Almost a full year prior to the battle, he demanded the assistance of the finest mining engineers and fortification specialists in the empire. Here again, the island favored the defender. Ebo's volcanic sand mixed readily with cement to produce superior concrete for installations. The soft rock 
lent itself to rapid digging. Half the garrison lay aside their weapons to labor with pick and spade. When American heavy bombers from the 7th Air Force commenced a daily pounding of the island in early December 1944, Kurabayashi simply moved everything, weapons, command posts, barracks, aid stations, underground. These engineering achievements were remarkable. Masked gun positions provided interlocking fields of fire. Miles of tunnels linked key defensive positions. Every cave featured multiple outlets and ventilation tubes. One installation inside Mount Suribachi ran seven stories deep. The Americans would rarely see a live Japanese on Iwo Jima until the bitter end. American intelligence experts, aided by documents captured in Saipan and by an almost daily flow of aerial photography and periscope-level pictures from the submarine Spearfish, puzzled over the disappearing act of the Japanese garrison, trained photo interpreters using stereoscopic lenses, listed nearly 700 potential targets, but all were hardened, covered, and masked from sight. The intelligence staffs knew there was no fresh water available on the island. They could see the rainwater cisterns, and they knew what the average monthly rainfall would deliver. They concluded the garrison could not possibly survive under those conditions in numbers greater than 12 or 13,000. But Korobayashi's force was twice that size. The men existed on half rations of water for months before the battle began. Unlike earlier amphibious assaults at Guadalcanal and Taro, the Americans would not enjoy either strategic or tactical surprise at Iwo. Japanese strategists concluded Iwo Jima would be invaded soon after the loss of the Marianas. Six months before the battle, Kuribayashi wrote his wife, The Americans will surely invade Iwo Jima. Do not look for my return. He worked his men ruthlessly to complete all defensive and training preparations by the 11th of February, 1945, and met the objective. His was a mixed force of veterans and recruits, soldiers and sailors. His artillerymen and mortar crews were among the best in the empire. Regardless, he trained and disciplined them all. As the Americans soon discovered, each fighting position contained the commander's courageous battle valves prominently posted above the firing apertures. Troops were admonished to maintain their positions and exact 10 American lives for every Japanese death. Fortunately, they failed to that end. To surrender would bring shame to their families. To kill less than 10 Americans would bring death down upon all of them and their families on the mainland. During the night of February 18th, Vice Admiral Mark A. Mitcher's Task Force 58, a huge carrier force, arrived off Iwo Jima. Also in this flotilla was Admiral Raymond A. Spruance, overall commander for the invasion, in his flagship, the heavy cruiser USS Indianapolis. Howlin' Mad Smith, an Alabama lawyer who had fought in World War I, nicknamed the Patton of the Pacific by many, was leading the Marines into action once again, having directed and often accompanied assaults on Taroa, Iniwatak, Tinian, and Guam without ever losing a battle. Unlike the days of the pre-landing bombardment, D-Day dawned clear and bright, 
At 08.59, one minute ahead of schedule, the first wave of Marines landed on the beaches of the southeastern coast of Iwo Jima. Major Howard Connor, 5th Marine Division Signal Officer, had six Navajo code talkers working around the clock during the first two days of the battle. These six sent and received over 800 messages, all without error. Connor later stated, were it not for the Navajos, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima. The code talkers in general used obscure languages as a means of secret communication during wartime. The term is now usually associated with the United States service members during the World Wars who used their knowledge of Native American languages as a basis to transmit coded messages. In particular, there were approximately four to 500 Native Americans in the United States Marine Corps whose primary job was the transmission of secret tactical messages. Code talkers transmitted these messages over military telephone or radio communications nets using formal or informally developed codes built upon their native languages. Their service improved the speed of encryption of communications at both ends in frontline operations during World War II. The name Code Talkers is strongly associated with bilingual Navajo speakers specially recruited during World War II by the Marines to serve in their standard communications units in the Pacific Theater. Code talking, however, was pioneered by the Cherokee and Choctaw peoples during World War I. Comanches, Lakota Sioux, and Meskwaki were also used effectively. German authorities knew about the use of code talkers during World War I and sent a team of some 30 anthropologists to the United States to learn Native American languages before the outbreak of World War II. But the task proved too difficult because of the array of languages and dialects. Nonetheless, the U.S. Army, learning of the Nazi effort, did not implement a large-scale code talker program in the European theater. Fourteen Comanche code talkers did take part in the invasion of Normandy and continued to serve in the 4th Infantry Division in Europe. Comanches of the 4th Signal Company compiled a vocabulary of over 100 code terms using words or phrases in their own language. Using a substitution method similar to the Navajo, the Comanche code word for tank was turtle, bomber was pregnant airplane, machine gun was sewing machine, and Adolf Hitler was referred to as a crazy white man. Two Comanche code talkers were assigned to each regiment, the rest of 4th Infantry Division headquarters. Shortly after landing on Utah Beach on June 6, 1944, the Comanches began transmitting messages. Some were wounded, but none killed. The deployment of the Navajo code talkers continued through the Korean War and after until it was ended early in the Vietnam War. The Navajo code is the only spoken military code never to have been deciphered. The last of the original 29 Navajo code talkers who developed the code, Chester Nez, died on June 4th, 2014, just a few years ago. Unfortunately for the landing force, the planners at Pearl Harbor had completely misjudged the situation that would face the Marines. The beaches had been described as excellent, and the thrust inland was expected to be, in quotes, easy. In reality, after crossing the beach, the Marines were faced with 15-foot-high slopes of soft black volcanic ash. This ash allowed for neither secure footing nor the construction of foxholes 
to protect the Marines from hostile fire. Trying to dig a foxhole was like working in a pile of marbles. However, the ash did help to absorb some of the fragments from Japanese artillery, so at least there was one good thing to say about it. You could hear the rifle fire, you could hear the machine gun fire. You could see the destroyers pulling up to the shore of Cervantes and firing up at an angle like 30 degrees, 45 degrees into that volcano. They had some guns mounted in there and uh, had them on rails with big doors and they'd open up those doors and fire out and then they'd close the doors and run the guns back in the, in the mountains. And uh, you read accounts of this Iwo Jima operation and uh, it is said that the enemy withheld the fire until we got up on the open plateau and were sitting ducks. Well, that's true of heavy caliber weapons. But we received small arms fire, machine gun fire, as we were approaching the beach. It wasn't uh, totally quiet. Uh, General Kurobayashi decided that uh, he wanted to get us up in the flat killing plane where all the heavy weapons had been registered, pre-registered. He knew every square millimeter of the beach. And uh, that worked. He got us up there and he unloaded. We received, uh, I was in the third wave, my company was in the second and third wave, and we received gunfire off the beach uh, in the boat and some uh, small mortar rounds, but the big guns opened up after we got up in the open area. So my concern at the time was to stay alive initially. Hand to hand, a lot of it, bayonets, grenades. It was so rough the terrain around the base of Cervati, boulders and chunks of uh, volcanic rock and, and every one of these places it was honeycomb with all types of block houses, uh, fortifications, caves, spider traps. Uh, the 28th Marines really took a beat there trying to take that rock. It was, it was continuous firing all the time. A lot of those ships, when they would see that, they, they knocked a lot of these guns out, tore them up, and that, that rock was smoking all the time. Volcanic uh, ash blowing up and powder was rising maybe 500 feet above the mountain. And on the land, there was so much artillery fire and stuff. The dust would be up as high as Cervati. Because every time a shell landed, that went down deep in the ash. It would explode and it would turn that ash into powder. Just like talcum powder. And it was hard to move in this stuff. You. When you're walking in something like wheat, in a wheat bin that's you're bearing up close to your knees, it's hard to move. Our mission was to serve with the landing party, the Beachmaster on Green Beach, which was next to Cervachi. I went in in the fourth wave. It was 
somewhere around nine o'clock. While we were at the line of departures, there was a lot of naval aircraft that was strafing the beaches, strafing Sirbachi, bombing Sirbachi. There was aircraft that were coming down from the north on the island, B-24s bombing. Uh, the smoke was about, or the volcanic ash and smoke that raised to about the height of Sirbachi, maybe 500 and some feet in the air. You could see the fringe around that at the water's edge. When we left the line of departures, the flag came down and I landed the troops. We proceeded to go for the shore and I landed in the fourth wave. And when we hit the beach, there was a tank just to the right of where the Higgins boat dropped the ramp and it was under fire, under artillery fire. And that was the wrong place to be, so we went up and crossed and over the first terrace into the tank trap, and across the tank trap and went up to the next terrace, the second terrace. And when we got there, there was a lot of heavy stuff that was coming in, artillery, mortars, uh, rockets, my platoon commander, platoon leader, Lieutenant Connolly, motioned for me to come to him. And he said to me, George, we were on the wrong beat. We were on red one. What I want you to do, I want you to go down the beach towards Green Beach, find out where the 31st CP is, come back and tell me. So I shed every, my pack and left it with him, kept my cartridge belt and rifles, and I started down the beach. Marines were trained to move rapidly forward, but here they could only plod. The weight and amount of equipment was a terrific hindrance, and various items were rapidly discarded. First to go were the gas masks. The lack of a vigorous response led the Navy to conclude at first that their bombardment had suppressed the Japanese defenses. And in good order, the Marines began deployment to the Iwo Jima beach. The first day landings were concentrated at the southern end of the island, within sight and range of Mount Suribachi. In those first minutes of deathly silence, interrupted only occasionally by small arms and sniper fire, landed U.S. Marines began to slowly inch their way forward inland, oblivious to the danger. After allowing the Americans to pile up men and machinery on the beach for just over an hour, Kuribayashi unleashed the undiminished force of his countermeasures. Shortly after 10 a.m. on February 19th, everything from machine guns and mortars to heavy artillery began to rain down on the crowded beach, which was quickly transformed into a nightmarish bloodbath. At first it came as a ragged rattle of machine gun bullets, growing gradually lower and fiercer until at last all the pent-up fury of a hundred hurricanes seemed to be breaking upon the heads of the Americans. Shells screeched and crashed. Every hummock spat automatic fire, and the very soft soil underfoot erupted underfoot with hundreds of exploding landmines. Marines walking erect, crumpled and fell, 
concussion lifted them up and slammed them down or tore them apart. Time Life correspondent Robert Sherrod described it simply as a nightmare in hell. The Japanese heavy artillery in Mount Suribachi opened their reinforced steel doors to fire and then closed them immediately to prevent counterfire from the Marines and naval gunners. This made it difficult for American units to destroy a Japanese artillery piece. To make matters worse for the Americans, the bunkers were connected to the elaborate tunnel system so that bunkers that were cleared with flamethrowers and grenades were reoccupied shortly afterwards by Japanese troops moving through the tunnels. This tactic caused many casualties among the Marines as they walked past the reoccupied bunkers without expecting to suddenly take fresh fire from them. In response to the heavy resistance on the beach, the Army's 147th Infantry Regiment was ordered to climb from landing craft with grappling hooks to scale a high ridge about three quarters of a mile from Mount Suribachi. The mission was to fire on the enemy opposing the marine landings on the beaches below. They were soon pinned down by heavy Japanese fire and engaged in non-stop fighting for 31 days before they could be relieved. Amtrax, unable to do more than uselessly churn the black ash, made no progress up the slopes, their marine passengers having to dismount and slog forward on foot. Men of the Naval Construction Battalion, Seabee, braving enemy fire, eventually were able to bulldoze passages up the slopes. This allowed the Marines and equipment to finally make some progress inland and get off the jam-packed beaches. Even so, in virtually every shell hole, there lay at least one dead Marine. By 11.30 hours, some Marines had managed to reach the southern tip of airfield number one, whose position had been one of the highly unrealistic original American objectives for the first day. The Marines endured a fanatical 100-man charge by the Japanese, but were able to keep their toehold on airfield number one as night fell. It was in this sector that Sergeant Darrell S. Cole of the 23rd Marines was killed after single-handedly knocking out several pillboxes and a bunker, thereby earning the Medal of Honor. PFC Arthur Rodriguez, a BAR man in 1st Platoon, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 23rd Regiment, 4th Marines, who arrived in the first wave, still no word to move up. It was at this moment that the real taste of war became evident. There was a large mortar explosion down to my left with devastating effect. A mortar squad was there, then all of a sudden, they were gone. Their body parts came raining down on us. I saw a head, still in a helmet. I didn't want to look. I didn't want to believe that this had just happened. I think that I went into shock. Finally, I heard Fusco say, let's move up to the airfield. He was now our new squad leader, since our original squad leader had been wounded during the landing. So we all got up and started moving up. I was on the extreme left flank. I could now see Marines from K Company, 5th Division, in a large crater. I asked them, who are those guys over there? As I pointed with my hand, they told me. They're part of our platoon, but they're dead. We think a sniper got them. I just told myself that this was not supposed to happen. It's not going the way it was planned. As we moved up to the first airfield, we received some machine gun fire. No one in my squad was hit, but as I found out later, 
We had also lost our platoon leader when he was wounded in the landing. I heard my group leader, Corporal Pravat, call to me. He was up ahead waving for me to get up where he was. To my left, there was a battery of 155 howitzers pounding Mount Suribachi. I could also see aircraft strafing and dropping bombs and napalm on the slopes of Suribachi. And of course the Navy and their big guns were also shelling Suribachi. The smoke and noise from so many explosions was awesome and more than anything I ever expected to see. It was about this time that I heard a new sound, a thump. Then I saw what looked like a barrel tumbling high overhead going down to the beach. I knew right away what it was, a large depth charge. I was right. Moments later we heard a loud explosion. Again, I didn't let myself think about what was happening to the Marines bringing all the supplies on shore. We had reached the edge of the first airfield where it met the land that sloped down to the ocean. First squad was given the word to dig in on the flat surface of the airfield. I am glad that we didn't have to charge across the airstrip. It was at this time that I became aware that our original squad leader and our original platoon leader were no longer with us because they had been wounded in the first two hours of the attack and had been evacuated. We heard the noise of our tanks before we saw them, coming up to pass near where we were digging in. At first I was happy to see these four tanks come in our way, but the enemy wasn't. The tanks were halfway up the hill when mortar shells started to rain down on them. There were no hits on the tanks as far as I could tell, but I knew we would be in for it when the tanks got up near where we were. The lead tank climbed up to the airfield, and at that moment there was a big explosion. Yep, the lead tank was hit. The second tank started to move around the lead tank, which was on fire, when it too was hit in the tracks that dried the tank. I knew then it had to be a line-of-sight weapon, perhaps a 75mm or an 88 anti-aircraft battery. To my surprise, both tank crews were able to escape through the bottom hatch of their tanks. I thought to myself, I was sure glad I wasn't in a tank battalion. They were easy targets in this invasion. The two other tanks stayed down below the surface of the airfield. The enemy knew where they were because they kept up the mortar fire, hitting all around them, including our area. We found dead Japs and trenches leading to underground bunkers. The smell was terrible. We had to make sure they were really dead. We poked them with a bayonet and threw grenades into the bunkers. After securing our area, my group leader, Corporal Pravat, sent me to check with K Company of the 5th Marines to make sure that they knew where we were. I thought to myself that I didn't know where the rest of Charlie Company was located if they asked me. All I knew was that we must be stretched along the edge of the first airfield. I had no trouble finding K Company. I talked to a sergeant and told him we were the left flank of the 4th Division. I just pointed to the area where our frontline portion was located. He said, no problem. We know where you guys are. He asked if we had many casualties. I told him that our mortar platoon had been hit hard down by the shoreline and we'd lost our sergeant and our squad leader. He told me that they were also hit hard on the beach. I said, good luck you guys, and walked back to my squad. I assured our squad leader that K Company knew where our area was. Pravat told me that they had used a lot of grenades to try and secure the many holes that were connected with the trenches. He also showed me a Jap sword and Luger pistol that he found on a dead Jap officer. He said he didn't know if he could carry the sword with him. We were spread out to cover any enemy attack that might come in the night. We had some water-cooled machine guns in place. 
I wasn't concerned because I knew we had the firepower to stop any frontal attack. Here at the edge of the first airfield was where we were going to spend our first night. Pravat and I shared the same foxhole. We all took turns staying awake in each foxhole. Four hours on, four hours off. There were so many shots being fired back and forth, I wondered how anyone could sleep. The sky all around us was lit up with mortar flares and flashes of light coming from our guns and the sound of our own guns pounding Mount Suribachi and the high ground across the airstrip where we were. We had 75, 105, and 155 howitzers. Suribachi was getting clobbered. We could still hear and see the tumbling sound of enemy depth charges as they passed over our heads and exploded on the beach. It was during my watch in our foxhole during the wee hours of the morning that I saw a fighter plane with its landing gear down that looked like it was trying to land. The plane as it passed by was not more than a hundred yards away from me. I thought it was one of ours until I saw on the fuselage the big red sun of the Japanese flag. It caught everyone off guard for no one took a shot at this plane. We held our position all through the next day and night. There was sporadic mortar fire hitting our area but first squad did not get hit. We received very little enemy fire that night. Most of it was going down on the beachhead. We were holding our position. I could see with borrowed binoculars that the 5th Marines were having a hard time trying to take the high ground that was across and to the left from where we were. I was glad that we hadn't charged across the airstrip. I thought that we were going to cut across the long narrow airstrip and take the high ground that would be in our sector as we drove onto the second airfield. Instead, we were instructed that we were now in reserve as we had taken too many casualties. The 25th and 24th regiments were now on the line, but because of the small area that we were in, there was no place that was not under enemy fire. That night, the right flank of our shelter was heavily bombed, but because they were so deeply fortified, they were not completely destroyed. In between the naval salvos, we were being fired on by an enemy flat trajectory 88 anti-aircraft battery. This went on all night long. In the leftmost sector, the Americans did manage to achieve one of their objectives for the battle that day. Led by six foot four inch Colonel Harry B. Harry the Horse Liversedge, the 28th Marine Regiment drove across the island at its narrowest width, approximately half a mile thereby isolating the Japanese dug in on Mount Suribachi. Sergeant Manila John Bassalone, a Medal of Honor recipient for his actions on Guadalcanal, fighting in the 27th Marines just to the right of Liversedge's 28th Regiment, was killed leading his machine gun section. Corporal Tony Stein, a former toolmaker, had transformed a wing gun from a wrecked fighter plane into what he called his stinger. With this unusual weapon, he methodically killed the occupants of multiple pillboxes, allowing demolition personnel following him to destroy the position. For these actions, he was posthumously awarded. He was awarded the Medal of Honor, unfortunately, posthumously. The rightmost landing area was dominated by Japanese positions at the quarry. The 25th Marine Regiment undertook a two-pronged attack to silence these guns. Their experience can be summarized by the ordeal of 2nd Lieutenant Benjamin Roselle, part of a ground team directing naval gunfire. This is a description of Roselle's situation. 
Within a minute, a mortar shell exploded among the group. His left foot and ankle hung from his leg, held on by a ribbon of flesh. Within minutes, a second round landed near him, and fragments tore into his other leg. For nearly an hour, he wondered where the next shell would land. He was soon to find out as a shell burst almost on top of him, wounding him for the third time in the shoulder. Almost at once, another explosion bounced him several feet into the air, and hot shards ripped into both thighs. As he lifted his arm to look at his watch, a mortar shell exploded only feet away and blasted the watch from his wrist and tore a large jagged hole in his forearm. I was beginning to know what it must be like to be crucified, he was later to say. The 25th Marines 3rd Battalion had landed approximately 900 men in the morning. Japanese resistance at the quarry was so fierce that by nightfall, only 150 of that 900 were left in fighting condition, an astounding 83.3% casualty rate. By the evening of the first day on the island of Iwo Jima, 30,000 Marines had landed. About 40,000 more would follow in the days and weeks to come. Aboard the command ship El Dorado, Howland Mad Smith saw the lengthy casualty reports and heard of the slow progress of the ground forces. To the war correspondents covering the operation, he confessed, I don't know who he is, but the Japanese general running this show is one smart bastard. On that first day, Two medals of honor were recommended and later awarded, as previously mentioned. One went to Sergeant Darrell S. Cole and the other to Corporal Tony Stein. In an effort to show the fact that all of these young men who never returned left a family behind and each had a name, a face, and a personal story. We offer this account of Sergeant Darrell Cole to illustrate the sadness and the magnitude of their loss and honor their sacrifice. Sergeant Darrell Samuel Cole was born July 20, 1920, in Esther, now part of Park Hills, Missouri. He attended high school in Esther, graduating in 1938. Before graduating, his main interests were sports, particularly basketball, hunting, and photography. He also learned to play the French horn, which later led him to being assigned as a bugler. After graduating from high school, he spent some time working with the CCC, Civilian Conservation Corps. And on August 25, 1941, he enlisted in the Marine Corps. Following United States Marine Corps recruit training, Paris Island, South Carolina. He was appointed to the Field Music School for training as a Marine Corps field musician, as a bugler. He was unhappy with being a field musician because he had joined the Marine Corps to fight. He applied for a change in rating to be a machine gunner, but was refused due to the shortage of buglers. After completing field music school, he was transferred to the 1st Marine Regiment, 1st Marine Division. After completing his first overseas tour, he returned to the United States in February 1943 and was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 23rd Marines, 4th Marine Division at Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. When his unit moved to California, he again asked for relief as a field musician and for permission to perform line duties. Again, due to the shortage of buglers in the Marine Corps, his request was denied. But during the Battle of Guadalcanal, which was fought between August 7, 1942 and February 7, 1943, in the Pacific Theater of World War II, and was the first major offensive launched by Allied forces against the Empire of Japan, 
Cole had his first opportunity to fill in as a machine gunner in the absence of a regular gunner. When Cole was sent to fight with his unit in Saipan, he was assigned to a machine gun unit again and was designated as a machine gun section leader. During the battle, his squad leader was killed and Cole, although wounded, assumed command of the entire squad. He was awarded the Bronze Star for his resolute leadership, indomitable fighting spirit, and tenacious determination in the face of terrific opposition, and was awarded the Purple Heart for the wounds he received. When fighting began on the island of Tinian in the Mariana Islands from July 24th to August 1st, 1944, Cole's unit was sent in a few days after the battle began. Cole again led his squad ashore in the invasion and defeat of the neighboring islands of Tinian and continued to build his reputation now as the fighting field musician. The Mariana and Palau Islands campaign was an offensive launched by the United States forces against Imperial Japanese forces in the Mariana Islands and Palau in the Pacific Ocean between June and November 1944 during the Pacific War. It was after the Marianas campaign that he submitted a request for a change of rating for the third time. Pointing out his experience and combat record, he stated that he felt he would be of more benefit to the Marine Corps performing line duties than those of field music. This time, his request was approved and he was redesignated corporal and subsequently promoted to sergeant in November 1944. On February 19, 1945, Sergeant Cole led his machine gun section ashore in the D-Day assault of Iwo Jima. Moving forward with the initial assault wave, a hail of fire from two enemy emplacements halted his section's advance. Sergeant Cole personally destroyed them with hand grenades. His unit continued to advance until pinned down for a second time by enemy fire from three Japanese gun emplacements. One of these emplacements was destroyed by a machine gunner in Cole's squad. When his machine guns jammed, armed only with a pistol and one hand grenade. Sergeant Cole made a one-man attack against the two remaining gun emplacements. Twice he returned to his own lines for additional grenades and continued the attack under fierce enemy fire until he had succeeded in destroying the enemy's strong points. Upon returning to his own squad, he was killed by an enemy grenade. As a result of his one-man attack, Sergeant Cole's company could move forward against the fortifications and attain their ultimate objective. Sergeant Cole was initially buried in the 4th Marine Division Cemetery on Iwo, but at the request of his father, his remains were returned to the United States to be buried in Parkview Cemetery, Farmington, Missouri. Cole was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor, which was presented to his widow on April 17, 1947. Those of you who know your history might remember the suicide attack on the guided missile destroyer USS Cole in 2000 in Yemen. The destroyer Cole, named after the reluctant bugler who gave his life for his country, survived the attack and serves proudly in the U.S. Navy, and it's now based in Norfolk. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries is a proud part of the 1001 Stories podcast network, which includes 1001 Classic Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, all family-friendly entertainment with a focus on history and classic stories. We really enjoy your reviews at Apple Podcasts and at Facebook.com forward slash 1001Heroes, our Facebook page. Here are some great reviews. Hi there, my name is 
initials A-S. And I am a producer on, and I'll have to paraphrase this one, a popular television show. We are looking for a contributor to appear on camera for a segment on Isaac Ike Grabel, the man convicted of setting off a series of bombs on the Northern Pacific Railroad. I came across your podcast, and I think it would be great to have you on the show and introduce you to our audience. We're still solidifying the day, but we're looking for a possible slot this Saturday. Let us know if you're interested and available. All the best. Another one. John. I heard about your podcast from listening to Chasing Earhart. Thought I would give it a listen, and I'm hooked. I'm listening to the legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine. As crazy as this may sound, I live just south of the Superstition Mountains. I can walk out my front door and have a direct view of them. I moved here in the early 70s from Ohio, and I've always had a fascination with the legend and the stories and the mystery behind it. As life would have it, raising a family and having a career life seemed to always get in the way. But now that I'm close to retirement, I would like to do some research on my own and maybe try and retrace the steps of Adolf Ruth. Could you give me some titles of good books to start my research? There are so many out there, and it's hard to choose from. Thanks, and I'm going back to listen to the rest of Part 2 of The Legend of the Lost Dutchman Mine. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to hearing from you. Regards, Dave Martin. This review from Patrick. January 8th, 2018. Thank you for the great stories. From Big D in Cincinnati, USA. I drive a three-hour round trip to work and back six days a week. I actually look forward to the trip since finding this fantastic podcast. Keep up the good work. Michael McGee. And this one from Jeremy. John, Jeremy here at the Army NYC Public Affairs Office. Thought you might find this of interest. And Jeremy went on to explain that the gravesite of Molly Pitcher, one of the subjects of our unsung heroes of the revolution, had been greatly disturbed, and that the U.S. Army had repaired it recently. And this one from Joe Rinaldi. I seldom review anything online, and never publicly, but I've been compelled to opine on the phenomenal content of your podcast. I eagerly await every episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You are spectacularly on point. Your subjects are engaging and exciting. You even present on controversial topics tactfully and artistically without bias. Your presentation on the miracle at Fatima was great. But my favorites are your presentations on the Second World War. I always feel like I'm on the field of battle when I listen to your show. Keep it up. Best podcast I have yet to find. For a future topic, I'd love to listen to you do a treatment on the Mercury 7 astronauts or on General Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. I'm an aviation professional, and if you're ever bored or would be interested in collaborating on a topic in that realm, I'd be happy to help. By the way, going along the line of aviation, your episodes on Amelia Earhart were top-notch. Respectfully, Joe Rinaldi. Jet noise is the sound of freedom. And thanks, everyone, for your emails, invites, reviews, and comments. My name is Jerry Ellen. I was a captain in the Army Air Corps, uh, and I flew P-51s off of Iwo Jima uh, starting on March 7, 1945, when the Marines took uh, enough land around the first dirt airstrip. I made 19 flights over Japan starting on April 7th, eight hours in a P-51, and I flew the first mission escorting B-29s, and on August 14, 1945, I flew the very last combat mission of World War II 
And my wingman, Phil Schlomberg from Brooklyn, New York, 19 years old, was killed on that day. So he was the last man killed in combat in World War II. What we were learned about the Japanese, or what they learned about us, uh, that war is an atrocity, that uh, in 1988, my youngest son married the daughter of a Japanese kamikaze pilot, which took me from hatred to love of family. I have three Japanese grandchildren. Um, I'd like their contemporaries to know that my ch grandchildren's grandchildren, grandparents served their countries with honor, no matter what we were learned about the Japanese or what they learned about us, uh, that war is an atrocity, that uh, evil has to be wiped out. And we are not what we believe. We are all human beings, exactly the same. Uh, and there's evil in the world today, and we have to fight that evil to make sure that there's freedom for free-loving people in our world. And you guys in the Marines, the Navy, Air Force, are the ones with that responsibility. And I know you fulfill it well. It means that my cycle of life is near its end. That's what it means to me. And I'm, I'm here willingly and happily uh, as a last fond memory of this island where I flew with 16 guys that didn't come back and I'm representing them here I'm the only guy who was a pilot who's on the island now who was a pilot in World War II. So I'm representing a lot of people, and I hope I'm doing it humbly and doing it correctly because we're leaving this world rapidly. And soon, years, there'll be nobody left from World War II. If you enjoyed this episode, we have many more great World War II episodes in our premium archives here at 1001. You can get access to all of them by becoming a premium member, which you become when you subscribe to 1001 Stories Network at the link shown in our show notes here. For only $2.99 a month, you get everything in all three 1001 shows, plus bonus episodes. And you'll have access to great episodes like Midway, The Turning Point of World War II in the Pacific, Guadalcanal, Operation Market Garden, and the Nazi Gold Train, just to name a few. We're asking all of our listeners to step up and help to support our show as we move into the future. It helps us cover our rising expenses, and it provides you with ad-free listening and access to everything we do, plus more. So please take a moment, go to our show notes, and become a premium member. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being great fans. Make sure to catch Part 2 of Iwo Jima at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries. question of why me? Why did I survive when the guy right beside me didn't? Why was I selected to do a particular job that eventually resulted in my receiving the nation's highest award?
when I know there were others that did as much and maybe more and sacrificed more than I did. It took me a long time to actually accept that I'm really entitled to this Medal of Honor that I possess. And I have said since the very inception, as soon as I could rationalize what was going on, it does not belong to me. Two of those Marines who were protecting me died. So they gave all, they gave all they had and so much more than I did. And yet I'm the guy that's wearing the medal. And I have said since the inception, I am just the caretaker of it. It belongs to them, it doesn't belong to me. So when I wear it, I don't wear it for what I did. I wear it for what they did. I'm quite often asked, what was your most effective weapon on Iwo Jima? Flamethrower, flame tanks, mortars, machine guns, individual rifle? My answer is none of the above. My most effective weapon was the individual Marine. Brave that he was, willing to take risks, knew what he was up against, and charged ahead anyway. I hope that from the Marine Corps War Memorial, when young people see that, they will recognize that those guys in that memorial statue represented the other 70 plus thousand Marines, sailors and others who are on that island. They have a great life, but somebody paid a high price so you could have what you have today. And the time's gonna come and you may have to contribute your share to ensure that your children have what you have today, and that's freedom. And if we don't have freedom, the rest of it isn't gonna count. Things just got hard, you know. We didn't even hear the truck engine going. And the truck, we were signaling in the truck, and I happened to look up, and that's when I saw a bunch of guys up there. Now this is at the top of Sarabachi. And uh, you know, it was just odd, you know what I'm saying? I wonder what they're doing up there, you know. I'm thinking the mountain's secured, you know. So I'm wondering what are they doing up there? And then as this was going through my mind, all of a sudden I saw the flag unfurl. And really, to this day, it was it was a quite a sight to see Old Glory, you know, on top of Sarabachi. And, and when I saw the flag go up, it was quiet. Not real quiet, but diminished. Was, as we flag went out, which we found out later, it was the second flag that was put up and all of, all of that. But it was the greatest feeling that I felt as an American, I get a little <clears throat> emotional when I think of it, but it meant so much. This was so glorious to see the flag go up like that, but then to see it reproduced in magazines and other places, that was incredible. 
and got to see something which has become eternal now. Stay tuned for part two of Iwo Jima at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. In part two, we'll cover the story of the flag raising at Iwo Jima. It's quite a story. And the first seven days of fighting. You don't want to miss it.